This program contains strong language and topics that might not be suitable for all listeners. In 2015, Jack did something brazen and romantic, the kind of gesture movies end on and history textbooks hinge wars on. He went and saw about a girl. Just flew down there, uh, like, middle of the night. I just showed up where I thought she was staying. Jack and his girlfriend had broken up. He wanted to win her back. They weren't living in the same part of the country, so he flew to her place, hoping that a trip across state lines was what it would take. I'm like, look, I'm here. Let's talk. I really want to fix this. She picked me up, and we were driving around for a while. His girlfriend pulled into a parking lot and parked her car. Then something terrible happened. I was half naked. I was just in my boxers, and she starts uh, strangling me. What Jack now knows is his girlfriend is crazy. Her moods change without warning. She flirts with other men and then complains to Jack when they reject her. And now she's strangling him, trying to kill him. It's probably a sight to be seen, an erratic woman in a parking lot in the middle of the night trying to kill a man wearing nothing but his underwear. And when the cops inevitably show up, Jack does something selfless. He lies, and he says he's suicidal so that the attention will be on him. I didn't want to fuck her life up, so I stayed in a mental hospital for a couple days. Unsurprisingly, this experience is where a lot of Jack's beliefs about women start and end. It's a primary plot point in the story he tells about himself. When you're just sitting in a room by yourself and you're thinking about this girl who you loved for a long time and then she tried to kill you, it's just brutal. It's just horrible. It feels like I died on that day and everything since has been this weird purgatory nightmare. This tape you're hearing of Jack Peterson, I didn't record it. The journalist Hannah Rosen did for an NPR show called Invisibilia. I'm in the running for a job there. They've given me this interview as a test to make a story out of. And though it wasn't explicitly stated, it does feel obvious that I should craft it to sound like an Invisibilia story. Which is to say, empathically. A thorough and thoughtful look at Jack Peterson's brain, how his character traits were born, and what we can learn from them. This is that NPR show called Invisibilia. I'm that journalist, Hannah Rosen. I'm Elise Spiegel. And that was producer Lena Masitsis you heard at the top of the show. Like Lena said, we gave her the tape recording we'd already done with Jack and paid her to make a story out of it. It's something we do in the radio business when we're interested in hiring someone. It helps us to see how they think. But this time was different. Because the story we got back from Lena was so not what we expected— almost the opposite of what we created, that it felt for us like a moment of reckoning. Selena's description of our show was right. The Invisibilia way is the empathic way. But Lena, and really much of the world, seems to be losing patience with that way. In the post-Me Too, vigilant, polarized, Trump-era world, showing empathy for your so-called enemies is practically taboo. So here we go. The invisible force under scrutiny in this episode is the one that powers a lot of Invisibilia stories. Empathy. We're going to play you the rest of Lena's story, but first, you'll hear the one that Hannah created. Could we get you to understand where Jack came from, his version of what he saw and experienced and felt, maybe even be moved by him? And should we? A couple of months ago, I came across this young man on YouTube. This is Jack Peterson. Um, today's date is February 26, 2018. Just clarifying my position on a couple things, so hopefully this goes well. And he had put together a most unusual PowerPoint presentation to showcase his credentials as a certifiable loser. Um, I'm unemployed and living with my mother. So no one should be envious of him. Okay, so listen, I don't think my looks are even above a four. And I believe these images below prove that I was not physically appealing. Cue close-up of his acne, as vivid as the pepperoni on the day-old pizza on his bed. A photo no one in their right mind would share on any platform, unless, like Jack, they were an incel, an involuntary celibate. Guys who hate women, and in rare cases kill them, because women won't sleep with them. When I saw this video of Jack, I couldn't help but wonder, what's driving you? 
why would you tell so many stories about yourself where you are the punchline? She said to me, you have good hands, but a bad penis. It's just so small. So I went to visit him in Chicago. Hi. How's it going? Good. I'm Hannah. He's 20 now and lives in a room in his mom's house. By the way, his real name is Kalurthan Dimitro. Jack is the name he uses publicly. Pretty much with whatever he talks about, he is excruciatingly self-conscious, always second-guessing himself out loud. I had a Star Wars poster, but I took it down because I didn't want people to know that I liked The Force Awakens. I just didn't want people to know because they're supposed to hate it. When he was a kid, the boys in his school were mostly fine with him. It's stuff the girls said he remembers. Like this girl in middle school once. I was sitting on the bus. This girl sat next to me. She was, like, pleasant. And then all of a sudden, it's, like, insane. She says to me something like, you know, oh, you know, I, I knew someone who was pretty ugly once, but he could be happy, like, anyway. I was like, why are you saying this to me? Like, what, you know, I don't care anymore, like, but it's, the thing is, there's a million little things like that that happened to me. There was, like, it's, it wasn't so much that they were rejecting me, like, romantically. It's just that they were rejecting me as even a human being. So almost as soon as he could type, Jack started escaping to chat rooms online. And in one chat room, he met M, who would become his girlfriend. We're going to use just her initial to protect her privacy. She was 17, and he was 12, although he lied to her about his age. What they had in common was other kids being casually mean to them. The thing is, she just showed me uh, compassion and respect that I didn't get from anybody else. At first, they chatted online for hours, and then graduated to talking on the phone every night. But then M started college, and Jack became fixated on the idea that she was flirting and possibly sleeping with other guys. So one day, he figured out her passwords. She would hide everything from me because she knew that if I found out about this stuff, I would be calling her a million times and saying, like, like oh, I'm going to shoot myself or whatever. So she hid it from me, but I found out somehow. And so I, I had her nude photos, and I, uh, I sent them to her parents, everybody in her family, uh, and her college professors and everybody she knew. I sent her nude pictures Again, I'm 14 when I did this, so I wouldn't do this now, but... 14, 40, 73, this is abusive behavior at any age. You can only admit this kind of thing to fellow incels. They won't see it the way the rest of the world does. But here's something you can't admit to them. That this same girl had brought you the best memories of your life, which in Jack and M's case happened one evening when they had reconnected. He was 16 now, and they were to five guys as the sun was going down, sitting together in a booth. I was like looking around and I was like, okay, I'm, I'm with my girlfriend and her friend and it was just nice. I don't know. It, it, it just felt good to feel like I was with this person who cared about me. I cared about her. It was just pleasant. That kind of a feeling of peace, uh, something that I, I probably miss because the thing is I haven't had a, like a peaceful moment in a long time. There's like a war going on in my head between hope and lack of hope and that, that kind of stuff. And so um, so I definitely would like to go back to that feeling of just peace and like everything's good. And that, that, that was that's something I think about. It didn't last. They went hot and cold and cold until that fall, he flew back to where she lived uninvited. And they were driving around and arguing when things escalated. Long story short, she, we pull into a parking lot. She starts uh, strangling me, which was only possible because she was like, she's pretty big, <laughs> like just to, for context. Jack ended up outside the car, banging on a store window in his briefs. M had made him strip down in case he had a weapon. Then the police picked him up, and the whole incident was such a colossal catastrophe that the relationship was finally over. Jack flew home, alone and miserable. He eventually landed on the incel forums. So I posted this long thing about how, like, you know, one of the only girls that I ever really felt a connection with is, you know, fucking some guy. I was just saying, like, that I wanted to kill myself or what. I don't even know what I was. I was just, like, venting all this shit. And what he gets back from the commenters on the forum? Shut the fuck up, you fake self. Like, oh, well, if you had any experience, then you can get another one eventually. Like, shut the fuck up. Like, just go to the club, man, and you'll get laid. Abuse and abuse and more abuse. 
and he likes it. Incels hate empathy, sympathy, comfort of any kind. Too feminine. So this was exactly what he needed. He felt seen. Can I look at incels.me with you for a minute? I just want to look at it. Okay. Um, so here's a post. Uh, it's titled, Femoids Should Fucking Die. Femoids is that's uh, st- like a strange term for, for women. The post says, I hope they all go terminal and fucking die. Abhorrent creatures. I have more respect for prostitutes because at least they embrace their degeneracy and don't hide it. Uh, every woman is a whore. <laughs> so that's, that's one post. It would be hard to say who they hate more, women or themselves. The theory that seems to give them the most comfort is that they're part of this biological class of people who will always be the reject mutants of the earth. And a lot of the ways they talk about it are physical. What might cause a recessed jaw, your lack of testosterone. You were born this way and you're just, you're fucked forever. And then they'll post a picture and they just look like a normal guy, so. Which, by the way, Jack does. He's long past his acne days. And now he just looks like a stock photo IT guy. No way he's a four. And then something happened. A Canadian man drove his rental van into a bunch of pedestrians and killed 10 of them, mostly women. And he posted on his Facebook page, the incel rebellion has already begun. And suddenly everyone was desperate to find out, what is an incel? And Jack was one of the few incels out there giving out his contact info. So Canadian TV called him and asked him, would he come on TV and explain? And so he did. Here he is on Canada's Global News. It's, it's more of a um, support group uh, for men who um, struggle uh, with women, who struggle in the dating scene, who um, uh, have trouble um, having sex. So what this meant practically for Jack day to day is that he was suddenly spending hours away from his computer, driving to TV studios, and he started noticing this surprising thing. But what really I noticed was that everybody I met, you know, at every, every studio, almost every journalist I've met um, was just super nice and welcoming and, like, just, you know, genuinely kind to me when... They really didn't have to be. They could have just treated me badly because I was part of this negative thing. And then one particular thing really hits him. The most positive, like, interactions I've had by far have been with women. Women. TV hosts. Reporters like me. Just regular, everyday femoids doing regular, everyday femoid stuff. So that exposure to kindness of of people in these positions of power and status made me feel like maybe the, maybe the game isn't rigged in the way I thought it was. Maybe if I, you know, if there's shit that I want to do, it's maybe it's not impossible. Maybe all it really takes is just to work hard and just be a nice person like all of these people are. It was admittedly a teeny tiny thing. Like, I'm sure these women were just doing their jobs, getting him a glass of water or whatever. But sometimes, when you lock yourself up day after day in an airless room of a story where you're a mutant and everyone hates you then even a teeny tiny reality check is enough to bring you back. And so the more Jack shuttled back and forth between TV studios and his computer screen at home, the more the life in his room seemed fake. So Jack flipped. just felt like I can't, you know, talk to these women one minute and have this friendly conversation, and then the next go on a website where, even if it's a joke, where people are talking about, like, you know, shooting women in the street. He asked the administrators of the incel site to block his account. I think I'm done with this right now. Oh, can I see your profile? Uh, what are you looking for? You your looking? profile. Can I just see it? Tinder? No, you don't want me to. Oh, yeah. oh I didn't know what you meant. Yeah, okay. I just want yeah, to see yeah, what sure. it looks like. Okay. I just want to see how... Jack spruced up an old Tinder profile, switched up his picture from him in his room to him in front of a VIP sign at an event with Jordan Peterson, who's a celebrity in the men's rights world. Because it makes me look like high status, even though it's not, (laughs) even though anybody could get a picture like that. But it, uh, anyway, it made me look like I I was somebody. He updated the bio. What does it say? I'm an activist with a passion for filmmaking. And it worked. Girl swiped. 
One asked if he wanted to come over that night, a booty call. But he couldn't handle that. So he asked her if she would go to dinner, like a real date, just to prove to himself that he could do it. I was a little nervous since I hadn't really done that before. Just She just walked in, and I don't even know what she said exactly, but just, just the way she looked at me, I knew that, I was, that it was fine. I knew she thought I was normal. I was so, I was so happy. <laughs> that look was all the confirmation Jack needed. Maybe I can get my life going and try to do, you know, wh- whatever it is that I set out to do, and I can actually try, try these things, and maybe there's some hope there. So, what, what does hope feel like? What does that word mean to you, or what does it look like in you? It feels like I can see further out. Like, for years, I just felt like it doesn't matter what I do because I'm going to be dead in a couple of years anyway. Um, but the hope was like I could see potential futures for myself that didn't involve like, you know, like a gun in my mouth. Like it, there was uh, more, uh, there were possibilities um, that I maybe didn't uh, recognize before. But letting go of the idea that the world might end in a few years yeah. is scary because it means you have to try and you could fail. Like that's very right. scary. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's because, yeah, now there's like stakes to what I'm, I do, because if I fail, then I'm not just going to jump off a building. I'm going to have to face it and like see how to work from that. I think the first version of this story is the version that Jack believes. But that version is a lie. After the break, a completely different take on Jack. This message comes from NPR sponsor Wix.com. Invisibilia dives into human stories that shape behavior. With Wix, you can create your own professional website to showcase your own stories. Choose a template you love and customize it with text, images, and videos. With hundreds of intuitive design features, you can tell your story exactly the way you want. Get started by going to Wix.com. That's W-I-X.com slash Invisibilia to get 10% off. Support also comes from ExxonMobil the company that believes that carbon capture technologies are critical for lowering global CO2 emissions. And more and more scientists agree. As a leader in capturing emissions in its own operations, ExxonMobil is working on ways to make this technology more efficient and affordable for other industries as well. That's the unexpected energy of ExxonMobil. Find out more at energyfactor.com. Hey, it's Ophira Eisenberg, host of NPR's Ask Me Another, and I'm here to let you know that every Friday in April, we're bringing you an episode that spotlights women in comedy. You'll hear from Retta, the star of NBC's Parks and Recreation, and I'll talk to Russian doll actor Greta Lee and co-creator Leslie Headland, and many more. Listen now. Welcome back to Invisibilia. You're about to hear Jack Peterson's story, Take Two. Same central character, and the facts haven't changed, but there's a critical difference in the way that empathy is used. Here's Lena Masitsis, continuing her Jack story, which you heard at the top. I want to play you a little bit of Jack's story again, about flying to his girlfriend's place to win her back. Jack believes that he arrived there a Romeo and left a martyr. Listen carefully to the subtle ways he makes himself into the good guy. Just flew down there, like, middle of the night. I just showed up where I thought she was staying, but she wasn't there. So I started calling her, and I'm like, look, I'm here. Like, I really want to fix this. I wasn't trying to do anything crazy. I just wanted to talk to her because she wasn't talking to me. So she picked me up, and we were driving around for a while, and then we pull into a parking lot. I, I was half naked. I was just in my boxers because she told me to strip down in case I had like a weapon or something. She starts uh, strangling me, which was only possible because she was like, she's pretty big. <laughs> like uh, eventually the cops pull up behind us. I didn't want to fuck her life up because I could have, you know, it, would, it wouldn't have been that difficult. So I, I just made some shit up about it. I was suicidal and then I stayed in a mental hospital for a couple of days. But Jack's version is a lie. First, what Jack did was a massive violation of M's privacy. She didn't want to speak to him, and so he crossed state lines to force her to. Because she wasn't talking to me. What Jack did to M could have easily turned violent, and so she checked to see if he was carrying a knife or a gun. Because she told me to strip down in case I had, like, a weapon or something. 
And what Jack did to M was wrong. So when the cops came, he kind of had to assume guilt. I didn't want to fuck her life up because I could have. You know, it wouldn't have been that difficult. Jack's been in the news a lot recently for leaving an online community who self-identify as incels, that is, involuntary celibates. Incels have a bad reputation. Most of them blame women for not fucking them, the great paradox being that they also blame themselves for not being fuckable. Many of them are proponents of retaliation by violence, and some of them follow through. The most famous example is Elliot Roger, a 22-year-old who murdered six people in California in 2014. Elliot left behind a 141-page manifesto outlining his ideology, his plan for what he called Retribution Day. If I can't have you, girls, I will destroy you. (laughs) Not all incels are murderers, but some are. And all incels do have in common the belief in a broken promise, that they were owed women and for reasons beyond their control, they're deprived of them. Jack claims to have woken up one morning with a change of heart. And then he put up a video on his YouTube channel announcing his departure. Yeah, so I have decided to leave incels, kind of move forward with my life. Um, I've watched every interview I can find from Jack Peterson's Atonement Tour. And they all have in common a few glaring omissions. For one, he seems much more interested in the media's perception of him than he is in his own perception of himself. When I was doing all this media stuff, I felt like I was um, finally getting to talk about what happened to me, and I was finally getting some kind of earned recognition after so many years of shit that I've had to deal with. When Jack talks about leaving incels, there's a noticeable absence of reflection. He knows he felt ignored by women growing up, a lot of which he blames on adolescent acne. He acknowledges that now he isn't ignored by women, a lot of which he attributes to no longer having acne. And he exhibits no awareness of his ex-girlfriend's experience in any of this. She's dealt with bullying and stuff before. In fact, this is the closest he gets. Because she was, you know, fat. Kind of a similar thing, obviously less extreme than what I dealt with. I don't have the voice of Jack's ex, but I do have a whole choir of women's voices in my address book. And after just a few phone calls, I start feeling like their experiences are all interchangeable. One in particular stands out. She's a writer in California. I'll call her Jay. For many years, Jay dated someone volatile and abusive. I mean, it was a lot of sexual assault, verbal assault, the whole nine yards. Jay's ex sounds a lot like Jack, And her story about him sounds so similar to the one that Jack tells. I'm going to just play the two beside each other. And by the way, we did get this verified. I actually broke up with her because she was just, like, bitchy all the time. And There was one day where he called me probably 40 or 50 times while I was at work. Then a couple days later, I was like, look, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have tried to break up with you. And But she just wasn't listening, and she wasn't answering my calls. He called 50 times and was threatening to hurt himself, which he had done before. I would say, like, oh, I'm going to fucking jump off the building tomorrow if you don't stay with me. Or... So eventually I did pick up, and he said, I know you're dating someone. I know you're seeing someone. You don't understand. You can't do this. I'm coming now. Like, middle of the night, I just showed up where I thought she was staying. I told him not to come over and over and over. And that night, he showed up at my house. I was scared. I don't want to make him mad. I am going to let him inside. At this point, I still cared enough about him that I I was afraid he was going to hurt himself if I didn't do something. So I let him in, and I let him spend the night. I don't want to get yelled at. I don't want to get hurt. And I and I also don't want to sell out the progress I've been trying to make. So I just sat there while he just cried for a long time. And I asked him to leave. He wouldn't leave. He just kept crying. She picked me up and we were driving around for a while. And then we pull into a parking lot. He pressured me into having not sex, but something akin to it. And this is where Jay's story diverges from M's. Instead of challenging her ex, she submits to him. I just sort of dealt with it by doing and saying as little as possible. 
The thing is, submission is easiest. Women have been taught, in some ways implicit and in other ways overt, that an effective way to survive something is by just letting it happen. Survival rate is higher for those who don't react. And same goes for fitting in, being liked. But something that Jack told Hannah about his ex helps explain why she fought back and why she's probably not crazy at all. About a year before his trip, Jack found out that M was seeing another man. They were broken up at this point, but still, he was furious. And so he retaliated. I had her nude photos, and I sent them to her parents, everybody in her family, her college professors, and everybody she knew. I sent her nude pictures. She was in therapy for a long time after that. As a reminder, here's what Jack said about his and M's history with bullying. She's dealt with bullying and stuff before because she was, you know, fat. Kind of a similar thing, obviously less extreme than what I dealt with. I'm usually one of those people-are-mostly-the-same types. Someone who tries to find overlap in just about everything. But this feels different. I think it's because this week feels different. This week, despite multiple allegations of sexual assault and despite a clear unwillingness to entertain the possibility that he might have anything to answer for, Brett Kavanaugh was confirmed to the U.S. Supreme Court. The day before Kavanaugh was sworn in, thousands of protesters gathered outside the U.S. Capitol, hoping to convince a few key senators to vote no on his confirmation. And one of them, a man, was filmed explaining why he showed up to protest that day. We all look at Kavanaugh and we see some similarities to things who've happened in our lives. At some point, you know, a woman said no and you, you tried to pressure her into doing something because this was normal activity for us as men. And that's when manhood begins, when we take accountability for our own faults. And so that, that's why I'm If Jack had said anything that even vaguely mirrored these words his 15 minutes of fame might actually matter. But he didn't. And they don't. It feels like I died on that day, and everything since has been this weird purgatory nightmare. Jack didn't die that day. In fact, he was reborn. Out of the ashes of a fabricated narrative that he and so many men like him have been fed over and over. And the cycle continues. I listened to Lena's story on my way into work one day. I rode the elevator up and down, six to lobby, lobby to six, feeling embarrassed and annoyed and called out and taking it all very personally and thinking, Hannah, you're an idiot. Hannah, are you an idiot? After the break, find out if I'm an idiot. This message comes from NPR sponsor, NCR. NCR Silver is more than just a point of sale. It's like adding a business analyst that helps you drive profitability. It's an email marketing machine. Need a loyalty program? No problem. It's built in. NCR Silver was built to help make running small businesses easier. Adding new locations or new lanes? It's simple with NCR Silver. Big enterprise tools built for small business owners. NCR Silver. Search NCR Silver. Support also comes from NPR sponsor, Moo. Don't leave your bright ideas on a screen or floating around your head. Print them to life. Moo helps businesses of all sizes do amazing things with business cards, postcards, and more. Moo offers ultra-thick paper and special finishes like gold foil, all backed by dedicated support from real print experts. And if you don't love your order, Moo will reprint it for free. Use code PRINTPOWER for 15% off right now at Moo.com. Moo, let's get physical. Hey, it's Guy Raz here, host of the TED Radio Hour. And on our latest episode, we're exploring what it takes to create social change and the many ways that we as individuals might be able to make a difference in the world. Find it on the next TED Radio Hour from NPR. So I called Lena into the studio to hash it out. Did Jack deserve our empathy or not? Is, it was your goal to get the listener into his head so they understand his, like, circumstances and his, like, arc? 
Or that is literally always my goal. That's always your goal. That is always unquestioningly my goal. And I honestly can say that for the first time, I am questioning that as a goal. I mean, I think it's the goal of our show. And it really is the way I have always operated as a journalist. And why? Like, why should we see ourselves in him? Why? Where did I get this idea that my job is to get you to empathize with a guy like Jack Peterson? When I was growing up, uh, empathy was a kind of unquestioned thing. Like, of course it was good. Um, It was like puppies or sunshine. Do you have the sense that that was true in the, say, 60s and 70s? Absolutely. That's exactly how I grew up. This is Fritz a professor at the University of Indiana who studies cognitive science. Fritz, Fritz Breithaupt, um, very German last name, name I apologize. <laughs> what? You can't do a story about empathy if you have a very German-sounding last name? Jeez, yeah. Well, well, Germans and empathy, that's a long chapter, of course. So, I never thought of empathy as an ideology or a creed, but I've since learned it was. Empathy was this obscure, psychobabbly term up until the 60s and 70s. Social scientists and psychologists started to push it into the culture basically out of fear. Their idea was we were either headed for World War III or empathy. We were all going to kill each other or we were going to learn to see the world through each other's eyes. And that was always the idea that had the Germans had had more empathy in the 1930s, Hitler would not have happened. The genocide would not have happened. Empathy was kind of seen as the hope against all of these kind of things. In my elementary school in the 70s, which wasn't progressive or mushy in any way, we wrote letters to pretend Russian pen pals to teach us to open our hearts to our enemies. And not just enemies, also people who were suffering. Some civil rights activists were really big on empathy. People with power and privilege were supposed to open their hearts to the realities of people without power. Not from the safe, noblesse oblige distance of pity, but from the inside. That's what I learned about how you make the world better. Encounter a person you're unfamiliar with or afraid of or even repulsed by. Don't duck. Move closer. Figure out what they're all about. So when did you notice a skepticism about empathy start to creep in? What I noticed was indeed it, it happened in classrooms. It was uh, students. Starting 10 or 15 years ago, students just stopped buying the automatic logic of empathy. Like, why should they put themselves in the shoes of someone who was not them, much less someone they thought was harmful? There have been surveys given to cross-sections of high school and college students starting in the late 60s. They've been recording reactions to the same set of questions and statements for decades. Statements like, I try to look at everybody's side of a disagreement before I make a decision. I sometimes find it difficult to see things from the other guy's point of view. I often have tender, concerned feelings for people less fortunate than me. And starting around 2000, the line starts to dip for all dimensions of empathy. Either just understanding someone's position, which is called perspective-taking, and empathic concern, the one about tender feelings. More students start saying it's not their problem to help people in trouble, not their job to see the world from someone else's perspective. By 2009, the average young person measures 40% less empathetic than my generation. A 40% drop? That is a lot. Do they just not believe in empathy anymore? What's wrong with trying to feel what Jack feels? So if I create a version of a story which overly identifies and asks the listener to empathize with Jack Peterson, what are the possible consequences? Like, what does that do or put out in the world that's a problem? The women who I believe he has abused become the villains. And if you don't get it right and, and you're inviting your listeners to empathize with someone whose logic is not just so offensive, but it's literally flawed, I, I just think you're creating more turmoil. For society. Right, right. Like the point of empathy is that it's bringing us together. And in that instance, I think it like further pushes us apart. So here's what I missed. In Lena's view, there's a cost to empathy. Empathy is not an infinite resource and it's not free. 
because it saps your strength for the fight. So if you boost one side, you'll make the other side weaker. And that is especially a problem when the side you're boosting is the side with power. There's actually a term for this invented by philosopher Kate Mann, empathy, the tendency to empathize with men in power over vulnerable women. Lena told me a story of how she was listening to an NPR interview with a white nationalist named Jason Kessler, who was the organizer of the Charlottesville rally. And as Lena was listening, she started to enter into Kessler's thoughts, understand his position. And when she caught herself doing it, she just slumped to the kitchen floor. And I feel like in that moment, I lost a little bit of my conviction. Like in that moment, I was hearing this person being given the room to allow us into his brain. Like in this moment, we were being like welcomed into this person's brain and it was fucking with my conviction in a way that I'm like almost ashamed of. And what's wrong with losing your conviction? I mean, in that instance, it puts other at-risk populations further at risk. Because if you do lose your conviction, you might not have the energy to march in the streets or get better laws to protect women from dangerous exes. So the new rule is, reserve it. Not for your quote-unquote enemies, but for the people you believe are hurt or you have decided need it the most. For the victims. For your own damn team. That's how you make things better. So Lena identifies with Jack's ex and with Jay and with Christine Blasey Ford. But here's what worries me. In that way of thinking, where the Lenas stop listening and trying to understand the perspectives of the Jacks, the Jacks also stop listening to the Lenas and identify only with their fellow incels, which is a problem. Because here is the dirty secret about empathy. Researchers who study empathy have noticed that when there's a standoff, could be the Super Bowl, the Arab-Israeli conflict, the Kavanaugh hearings, it is really hard to empathize with the enemy. But that doesn't mean that empathy is absent from the scene. People are feeling strong empathy, but it's selective, only for their own team. I see. So we used to say, like back in the idealistic age about empathy, like you would have a war breakout and you would say, oh, the problem here is that there's not enough empathy. And the way we're seeing it now is, oh, the problem here is an excess of empathy. There's too much empathy with your side. Yes, exactly. At least exactly. Some terrorists where I would say it's not an absence, a a, a complete absence of um, empathy that draws them in, but rather it's it's an excess of empathy. They feel the, the pity, they feel the suffering of their people. A terrorist facing a huge, powerful army draws on another powerful weapon, empathy, but only for people like her. This is why Fritz called his book The Dark Sides of Empathy, because there's a point at which empathy doesn't look anything like the universal ideal we had in our heads in the 60s. It starts to look more like tribalism, a way to reinforce your own point of view and keep blocking out all the others. In my generation, we thought of empathy as the big warm sun lighting the path to peace for us all. Now it operates like a torch. You shine it on your friends and use it to burn your enemies. How long do you want to keep this up, this this, this putting people outside the bounds of empathy? Like, how long do you want to do that? Because eventually what? Like, what's the end game of excluding some people from the possibility of empathy? Like, where do you end up? Basically, you give up on civil society at that point. You give up on democracy. Because if you um, feed into this division more and you let it happen, it will become so strong Mm -hmm. that it becomes dangerous. So the Sun version of empathy was a delusion, some idealistic 60s nonsense that fundamentally misunderstood how the force actually works. And the torch version leads to the death of everything. So why aren't you one of these people who say, I'm against empathy? Say, say the concept is so tainted, like we've learned so much about it and how it works and how corrupting it can be that it's just not a useful concept anymore. I think that empathy still, overall, is the key to our humanity. Without empathy, we would be just alone. I mean, throwing that out would be, um, well, cutting out 90% of what, um, what our life is all about. Empathy in its elemental, basic form 
one person looking another in the eye and really seeing them. However we use it, for someone we love or hate, for someone in trouble or someone who's driving us crazy, it's the substance that keeps us from spinning out into loneliness. The worst way of being, except for all the others. Or maybe not. Should I call Jack? Do you, not, you don't want to hear him? Oh, I would love for you to call Jack. All right, let's try it. I'll see if he's there. Lena, Jack. Hi, Jack. Hey. How's it going? It's good. <laughs> sorry, sorry to cut you, you off guard, buddy. Um, it's okay. Lena and I called Jack on a whim as a final way to resolve our differences. See if he was, in fact, a person who deserved my brand of universal empathy. You know, like a last-ditch effort to save democracy and civil society and all that. Or should he fall into Lena's more selective, no empathy for the enemy camp? I like that Lena called him buddy. I mean, it was a little patronizing, but I decided to view it as friendly. Maybe a sign that she was open to hearing him. But then pretty immediately, she started grilling him. And 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 so I hear you use the word respect a lot. I mean, here, here's the thing is that I've always considered myself to be a respectful person, or type of person who disrespects people in the first place so except for that you you did send out naked pictures of your ex and you also showed up at her house uh uninvited after she wouldn't pick up the phone for you after she broke up with you like i would not do that to some random person i mean also that's you know the uh, story like that this was not looking good for me. Jack was still making a lot of excuses, showing himself not to be the good reformed incel I had portrayed him to be. But then Lena tried something interesting, an empathy test. So I, I've heard the story of that night when you showed up from your perspective. Um, right. I'm wondering if you can try just telling me that same story from her perspective. Like, what was it like for her that night when you showed up? So from her perspective, it's she doesn't want anything to do with me anymore. Now this psycho's near my house or whatever, and he's what? What is he going to do? What is he going to shoot me? You know, that's probably what I'm just being honest with you. That's probably what she thought. I, I mean, that's was. And meanwhile, in my head, I'm thinking this is perfect because once she sees me again, she'll realize that I'm not a bad guy, and she'll you know she'll remember all the good memories we had together. Lena and I looked at each other in the studio. She seemed a little surprised. Jack had actually done a decent job of imagining how his tortured girlfriend was feeling. And for a moment, I felt like maybe I was right. But Jack himself put an end to my feeling of triumph. But I think the actual story is the change that happened for me this year was not just that, oh, I was a sexist, toxic asshole, and now I've seen the error of my ways. I mean, that is... It kind of a scam. It's not really true. The actual truth is this, is that it's not has not really a redemption story for me. I mean, it's more um, all I'm thinking about. How, what can I do to make my life not horrible? I hadn't expected this. Jack was letting me know that I had been so eager to build a bridge to get to the we are all one place that I'd missed a few things, like fundamentally misread the person I was supposed to be empathizing with. I went right past Jack the actual person to Jack the idea in my head, Mr. Reformed Incel. I started to feel like I'd made the wrong choice, whereas Lena in this moment went in the opposite direction. She moved past Jack the generic enemy incel to Jack the fellow human, a 20-year-old living in his mom's house and trying to make it through the day. Right. So your feeling after talking to him is like you can empathize with him as an individual who doesn't stand for a larger thing. Almost. Yeah. yeah. He's yeah. just like a kid who's trying to not be miserable. And as it like and on it like and like as a kid who had acne and, and took Accutane herself in high school, like <laughs> it sucked. It sucks. Empathy in its elemental basic form. Three humans in a room caring enough to try and figure each other out. Or rather, two femoids and one buddy together in a room. Because let's be honest, emotional labor is generally femoid work. Lena changed my mind a little. I don't really think I changed hers all that much. Although, at least we were looking at the same Jack now. A pimple-sized spot of agreement. That's Hannah Rosen. 
Stick around for a preview of the new season of Rough Translation. Support for NPR comes from Newman's Own Foundation, working to nourish the common good by donating all profits from Newman's Own food products to charitable organizations that seek to make the world a better place. More information is available at newmansownfoundation.org. On the new season of Rough Translation. Think of a time that you decided something had to change. I was like... How'd you feel? Having my heart squeezing and my brain totally freezing for some seconds. Justified. Better it be over an issue like the survival of the planet. Empowered. Am I supposed to punch her? Yeah, yeah. What did you do next? In my opinion, the best revenge against ISIS is to be humane. I'm Gregory Warner, international correspondent for NPR. We're back with a new season of Rough Translation the show that travels far away to bring you stories that hit close to home. Yeah. And this time, we are following people who break the rules. Sir, I've been moving bodies for six months. What they say about the world. And you didn't even know we were there. And what they say about us. What I'm doing right now, why I am rejecting all the appreciation. Rough Translation, starting Wednesday. Subscribe. After our credits, we chat with Greg Warner about what else to look forward to in their coming season. Invisibilia is hosted by me, Hannah Rosen. And Mia Lee Spiegel. Our show is edited by Ann Goodenkoff. Our executive producer is Kara Tallow. This episode was produced by B.A. Parker. Invisibilia is produced by Yoe Shaw and Abby Wendell. Our project manager is Liana Simstrom. We had help from Jake Arlo, Julie Carley, David Goodhertz, Taylor Haney, Lena Sansgiri, and Liza Yeager. By the way, Lena Masitis, she's working at This American Life now. This episode was partly inspired by talk we heard at Third Coast Audio Festival by Chendrai Kumanika and Sandia Dirks. We also owe a debt to Susan Lanzoni and Sarah Conrath. Fact-checking by Bryn Winterbottom and Rachel Brown. Our technical director is Andy Huther, and our vice president of programming is Anya Grunman. Special thanks to Mark Mehmet, Michael Ratner, Emily Bogle, Michael May, Jeff Pierre, David Plotz, Nikki Walker, Raina Cohen, Thomas Liu, Chloe Weiner, Sylvie Douglas, Ryan Deaver, Neva Grant, Alvin Malaith, Nick Fountain, Samir Rao, Dave Blanchard, and Sophie Rudine. Music for this episode is provided by Ramtin Arablui, Connor Moore from Seymour Sound, and Young Karts. Additional music from Blue Dot Sessions. To see an original illustration for this episode by Christina Chung, visit npr.org invisibilia. Thank you to Alpha Drabo for saving us from technological purgatory so many times this year. Also, love and thanks to Lulu Miller, co-founder of Invisibilia. We miss you. And now for our moment of non-zen. And brother there, but for the grace of God. Oh boy, this is not going to work. This is our last show of the season, but we're going to be back really soon. This year we're doing a fall season. So join us then for more Invisibilia. Invisibilia. Are you asleep yet? Invisibilia. <laughs> Being so creepy. Yes. I'm back with the host of Rough Translation, Gregory Warner. Hey, Hannah. Are you excited for your new season? Yes, it's been a long time coming. We're very excited for it. We know about a long time coming. That is <laughs> exciting. So uh, give us a sneak preview of your first episode. So our first episode is from Mosul, Iraq, uh, a city we normally hear about either because of terrorists and insurgents. Mosul was under ISIS occupation for years or about war. There was a fierce battle there. But in the wake of that war... Our correspondent, Jane Araf, has been hearing about this trend of millennial-aged volunteers who are just kind of going into the city to help out. Um, to do things like clean schools and hospitals. I would go out on the street and I would see the guy with the loudspeaker kind of preaching the benefits of volunteerism on the sidewalk. What I remember him emphasizing was the fact that we can make a difference. Which is not so weird in the world after a major disaster like a hurricane, but in Mosul, 
is particularly dangerous because those who step in where the government is doing nothing can be seen as insurgents. So so we profile this one young woman. Uh, she's a 23-year-old nurse, Saroor al-Husseini, and she's been going into the city and clears away the corpses of ISIS fighters, which have just been sitting there for months. Uh, she sometimes has to defuse their suicide belts and then bag them so they can be sent to the morgue. You don't think that's a little bit crazy? If I think I know how to do it, then I can do it. Why has nobody cleaned up the corpses? Did the government just not get around to it? Because that's so strange. It's just a general neglect. I mean, literally, the city doesn't have the organization for it. But then also, there's this sense that cleaning up a body is helping ISIS. So she has become accused of that. She's also, though, just breaking all these other norms. Like, she's, like a, she's a woman. Like, that's the first thing I noticed that you said. I, it, you don't expect. I mean, I know she's a nurse, so in some sense, that's she fits a mold. But. Well, no, even nursing in, in Iraq is, is seen as a, not a proper profession for a, a middle class woman. So she's breaking norms there. But then she's also leading this team of men. I mean, she points to a severed head and tells this guy, pick up that head. And he says, wait, no, seriously, pick up that head. And she says, yeah, pick up that head. And he just does it. Uh, wow. And they wear T-shirts that say Team Saroor, her name on it. Uh, <laughs> Why? Like, what is it about her that has allowed her to slip into this role of basically bossing the men around? There is a there's a chance after a war, after something as cataclysmic as an ISIS occupation that allows for a remaking of the rules. You can almost rewrite things, especially out there in the rubble where Saroor looks around and she doesn't see the government. She just sees other young people, other teams of people helping out. So there's a sense of, well, it's our rack now. That's actually kind of beautiful. I mean, the fact that you blow the thing up, something new can come down in its place. Anything you want to say about the rest of the season? Well, I mean, the theme of our season is the rebels. In every episode, we are going to meet people like Saroor who are pushing against the culture they find themselves in. Whether that is French language politics or Israeli spy culture or American evangelicalism, we meet people who are saying to themselves, wait, why does it have to be this way? And then they push up against what they think are the norms and they face those consequences. Gregory Warner is the host of Rough Translation, out with its new season starting next week. Check it out. Thanks, Greg. Thanks, Anna.